Father, as we come again to thy word, we realize that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to dividing asunder the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and as a judge or a critic or an evaluator of our innermost thoughts. We pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In the notes on page 61, there's a section in there that we finished up last time that went over pretty fast. And just to uh, review the the point, um, we're at that point in the uh, exile in history when the Gentiles took on, the Gentile nations took on, were allowed by God to take on, a new form, a totalitarian form. And it's a form that I um, call um, um, imperial. And if you'll turn in, the, in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, uh, I want to review just some features of that. And it's important that we understand this structure because we live under this same regime that started in the exile. It hasn't been changed uh, unless you're a post-millennialist and believe the church is bringing in the kingdom. Um, in Daniel chapter 2, the grand announcement was made. And again, I want to um, show you um, in this dream uh, the scope of it. Uh, remember that the king dreamed the dream and they, he looked around for somebody uh, to, to interpret the dream. And he started killing people. Um, in the bottom of uh, chapter 2, um, page 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, uh, he got rather angry that no one in the kingdom could interpret this for him. And of course, this was divinely planned. Um, the book of Daniel is like the book of Esther in that the, hand, the, the way God works through the historical events is sort of tongue-in-cheek. It, it's, uh, it's providential. You kind of have to sit back and say, well, what's going on here? And it, it's written in a style that conveys it's, it's sort of just accidental how things go on, like he dreamed a dream, like, you know, like any other night. Uh, but this was a special dream. This is a dream that is analogous to the dream of what other Gentile ruler that we studied two years ago um, on the other end of Israel's history. This is, not the, this is in the Exodus end of her history, of her kingdom. Before the Exodus, where was Israel? It was in Egypt. And who was the one who dreamed the dream in the days of Joseph? It was Pharaoh. So notice the analogy. You'll notice that there's a subtlety to it. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Let's, this is a detail of scripture, and we don't want to let it get away from us. Um, why do you suppose the scripture reports these two, both ends of the historical period of Israel's kingdom. And in between that period, we have God speaking on Mount Sinai so directly that the people are afraid. That's where the expression, put the fear of God in somebody came from. Um, You have a direct revelation. You have Moses speaking with God. You have the Lord speaking through the prophets. Then, before this takes place, you have dreams. 
and after it you have dreams. Can anybody see that this itself is a commentary? First of all, it's a commentary that the God of the Bible is the God of the nations. It's not just the Jewish God. He speaks to everyone, all the human race, not some cultural elite off to the side. This is not a culturally relative thing. God is an absolute God. But notice the subtlety of how he speaks. There's a difference in the way he speaks to his people and the way he speaks to the world. He still speaks to both. But the speaking to the world is, is indirect and has to be interpreted. And the, the point here is in Daniel 2 that there has to be a godly interpreter there. And the godly interpreter uh, isn't found in verses 11 and 12. The king, thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now quite clearly... The Chaldeans, in verse 10, who are saying this, who are, have the reputation in history for being uh, profoundly say, demonic uh, and spiritistic. I mean, these are the people who conjure up the dead from the grave. These are the people that speak the spirits of the dead. I mean, they had all kinds of weird contacts of the underworld. So here are these people, much like who else said the same thing back in Pharaoh's day. Remember? the adversaries of Moses. And who were the adversaries of Moses when the first few sign miracles happened and they mimicked and counterfeited the sign miracles? It was Pharaoh's magicians, remember? So these, these, these people... And, and by the way, even that observation tells us something. Um, that suggests, in both cases, these guys are intimate with the political leaders of the time. And it's a commentary that in the pagan culture, political leaders um, have great camaraderie or attract to themselves people who are deeply steeped in the demonic. Their, their closest advisors are often very satanic people. And I believe, for one, that that's how, God, how Satan runs the world. He, all it takes is, is a good ruler with crummy advisors. Um, probably one of the greatest illustrations of this, um, if you read Russian history, is the monk Rasputin. Um, how that man, that, of all the demonic people in the last two or three centuries, and this guy they had to kill him seven times before they could finally get him dead. Um, this guy got into the Tsar's family group because he could control the hemophiliac bleeding of the Tsar's son. The Tsar had a son who was, because the Russian nobility intermarried with the Germanic and intermarried with the English, and so the royal families in Europe actually were genetic basket cases because they refused to marry commoners, so they'd marry across lines, and their cousins were marrying cousins, and this is how you get all this genetic weakness. And so the Tsar's family had, had a child that was in deep trouble. And this monk, Russian Orthodox monk, uh, was able to do, quote, good things. And he helped with this therapy with his child. And he got the Tsar's ear. And uh, so it's an example of the close intimacy to Gentile rulers. Well, even in the days of Israel, I mean, the kings intermarried, and who was the Ahab intermarrying with? The daughter of the lead chief of, of Baal. So... 
this book, Daniel, by the way, is not in the prophetic writings of the Hebrew Bible. It's in the third section. It's not in the law. It's not in the prophets. It's in the writings. Which means that Daniel is viewed by the Holy Spirit primarily as a book of wisdom, not a book of prophecy. And you want to wait a minute. I mean, of all the books that everybody thinks about when they think of prophecy, they think of the book of Daniel. Evidently, the Holy Spirit doesn't because he didn't classify it as a book of the prophets. And we have to say, why? Well, where was Daniel functioning in that society? We're going to see what happens. Verse 14, Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to one of the king's advisors. And he goes in, he prays. Verse 17, he gets a prayer group with his three friends, who, by the way, in verse 17, are called by their proper Hebrew names, not by the Gentile names. And um, finally, uh, Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever. He who changes the times and the epochs, he removes kings, he establishes kings, he reveals the dark and hidden things. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now, even now, thou hast made known to me what we requested of you. And so the Lord opens Daniel's heart to this vision. Verse 19 is how he did it. He did it in a night vision. Now, when he does that, he goes in, he tells the king, and Daniel, verse 27, this is a classic reference of a wise believer in a pagan society. The book of Daniel is tremendous to read, to establish model behavior for living as a lone, isolated group of Christians in a domineering pagan society. It's just loaded with stuff. And uh, here is how Daniel talks to a pagan ruler the most powerful man in history of the time. And Daniel has his ear. Not because Daniel uh, got a lot of votes, not because he manipulated his way into the king, but just because circumstances under the providence of God brought him to the king. And he has the king's ear. So Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, Neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. See, he, he reiterates, King, you understand this. This dream, whatever it was you had, is a, is a supernatural thing. It's not just one of your normal dreams. King had thousands of dreams. But this particular dream had a unique quality to it. And Daniel said, it's obvious that the best guys around here, the therapists, can't handle this problem. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now he begins to witness to King Nebuchadnezzar. He starts out with the nature of God. However, there is, and this is an actual evangelistic encounter between a believer who is getting into the inner circle of a pagan leader. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, notice Daniel's hum humility here. As for me, very, very easy, you know, Daniel to walk in there and stroke himself and, and you know, hey, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the hot shot in the court now because I, I do these things and I have so much personal wisdom and I make your followers look like fools. It would be very easy for Daniel to exploit this. But Daniel has humility before God. And he says, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. See? 
he attributes the whole skill to God. This is the godly believer. And see, that's part of his witness. It's part of his witness. What made a difference in his life isn't his own assets, isn't his own flesh. It's something God is doing through him. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And he goes in, the head was gold, the breast and the arms silver, the belly and his thighs bronze, its legs iron, its feet partly iron, partly clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. By the way, notice the stone without hands. Do any of you, um, have any of you read enough in the Old Testament that that rings a bell? Stone cut without, with, without hands. Any of you um, remember in the stories of building altars in the Old Testament, what was prohibited in the stones that were part of the altar? You couldn't hew them. They could not be hewn stones like the Gentiles built their their, uh, altars with. It wasn't bricks. It was natural rock. And again, see, in worshiping God, it can't be the works of man's hands. And God made it such a point that when you, when you went to make an altar, you had to just take the rocks like God left them. Don't mess with them. Just leave them. He did it that way, and you just build on that. So, th- this is loaded. This, this is one of his loaded expressions. So, a stone was cut without hands. It implies that this is the way God is working. The stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet, not on the head, but on the feet, and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, so not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we're going to tell you the interpretation. So immediately Daniel has done something here. The king never told Daniel what the dream was. So Daniel has told the king both his dream and now his interpretation. And this follows the same way Joseph dealt with Pharaoh. And both of them follow a law of evidence in the Bible. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, a truth shall be established. So Daniel's doing two things. He's not just telling the interpretation. He's telling the dream and the interpretation, showing two evidences of of these origins of this. You, O king, are king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And by the way, notice the words in verse 37. They parallel exactly the attribution of glory to Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Now we ought to take note of those. Those are similar expressions. And you say, wait a minute. What is going on? You're attributing in verse 37 things that are attributed to Jesus. Well, consider for a moment. um, Nebuchadnezzar is placed in a position potentially of ruling the world. And description of those adjectives and nouns to him in verse 37 is another way of declaring his sovereignty. And it's an attribution of him. So when in the book of Revelation you see the same attributes applied to Jesus Christ, it's a claim. It's a claim not that he's just a religious figure. It's a claim that has content invested from the Old Testament. 
See, this is why you get so many weird interpretations in the New Testament, because people come racing through it at 60 miles an hour, no background in the Old Testament, and they start arbitrarily making these interpretations. And wait a minute, hold it. All those powers and, and things and qualities that are attributed to Jesus in the book of Revelation, all power, all glory is given to you. It is not just religious. The context here isn't religious. The context here is political and physical. So therefore, the content in the book of Revelation includes more than just the religious. It is physical and political power when it says the power and the kingdom. It's talking about Jesus Christ ruling physically and politically the world someday. Not a popular concept. Send verse 38, notice the dominion, the, the dominion of this king. To you, O king, are giving these things, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given into your hand, has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So now Nebuchadnezzar has his placed in the dream. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. That is the media Persian Empire. Another uh, third kingdom of bronze, which would be the Greek, the Greco uh, Empire. And then <clears throat> there shall be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, which is the Roman Empire, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all things in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of clay, partly of iron. And as the toes are partly of iron, partly of parties, so the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And it goes on to describe this fourth kingdom. Now notice what in the dream happens. Verse 44, And in the days of those kings, plural, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but will itself endure forever. Now, the, the problem in prophetic interpretation, and this is not a course in prophecy, but one of the problems in prophetic interpretation is that, um, I, I don't know, I kind of call it the accordion principle. Because when uh, prophecy is given, it's always compressed in time. For example, um, the gospel came to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and she took that prophecy that she would be the mother of all living and thought her first son was the Messiah. It's the wordplay there. And that being the case, she, Eve didn't realize, I mean, hon, there's, there's thousands of years before Messiah's going to come. So it's, it's, the promise is valid, but you just got the timing wrong. Well, what happens in prophecy is that God, so to speak, builds in uh, expansion, ways of expanding history. And this vision of the fourth kingdom is a good example of this because the fourth kingdom arose in the days of Rome and according to this prophecy continues until it is destroyed by God's kingdom, a kingdom without hands, uh, created without hands. So Rome will be cut off. Well, we already know Rome went down into oblivion, but it went down into oblivion in this kind of strange way. Uh, the Roman culture declined, got weak, and the uh, barbarians came in, but the church basically carried on civilization from it. And the picture is that whatever the 
continuity is here, it, it's sort of been abiding resident in history, even through our present time, and will one day rise again. And uh, some people refer to it as the restored uh, Roman Empire. And at that point, then, it sort of continues back then to the way it was before, except in this case is a plurality of kings, not one Caesar, a plurality of kings, sort of a, a, a confederacy. And then upon that comes the Lord Jesus Christ. So the divine kingdom comes in at the end of history. So there's this strange continuity in history. Now, it's not clear from the way... Um, it reads quickly, and again, this is not, of course, an interpretation of Daniel either. But you'll notice there's a little phrase um, at the end of verse 4, 44, in the middle of verse 44. That kingdom will not be left for another people. And when you do an analysis of Daniel chapter 2, what you discover is that the four kingdoms are not mutually exclusive. That what happens is that you have the Babylonian kingdom, then you have, after that, the Media Persian kingdom, then you have the Greeks, then you have the Roman. What appears to be said here is that these kingdoms always contribute to their, to their follower. So that qualities in the Babylonian kingdom, the first kingdom, carry over into the second. Qualities in the second and first carry over into the third. Qualities of the first, second, and third carry over into the fourth. And we could go on and on and on about that. But tonight is, is not a time of interpreting this. It's just I want to get you to see that, that there's a big statue here. And basically what Daniel's told Nebuchadnezzar is that as the father of imperial paganism... He has been granted a view of the entire history of the world down to the end. A magnificent revelation to this man. And Nebuchadnezzar in verse 46 responds to this witness. He fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel in verse 48. What happened to Joseph? Compare. Joseph interpreted a dream in a divinely engineered set of circumstances. He was able to show God working in his life became attractive on pragmatic grounds to the pagans around him and was promoted. And Joseph attained a position in Egypt next to virtually the Pharaoh. And look what happens here. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now just look at the end of that verse 48. Now notice his position. Later, we're going to make big mention of the six religions, seven religions that, that grew up in this period and what's strange, what's going on with all this religious revival in the 6th century B.C. and how come it, it gets influenced ethically and where the influence come from and we're going to make the claim that it came from the Old Testament. You go, well, how did it come from the Old Testament? Well, who is it in verse 48 that is ruling over the men who are the intellectual leaders of the most powerful nation on earth. You see, people don't read carefully the text. 
If we just read that one sentence in verse 48, it would save a lot of speculation. That one sentence in verse 48 basically sets up a mechanism through which the Old Testament goes into all of pagan culture. Daniel's was known. The problem is because men were, were called by many different names in ancient history, it's hard to find out, you know, what if we read pagan literature, we don't see the word Daniel necessarily but we probably see him under other names. And the question is, what are the other names? It's a very hard historical question. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the providence of Babylon. Okay. Well, now, a strange thing happens. And it's this strange thing that happens that leads us into a deeper understanding of our society and what's wrong with Gentile imperial culture and why it's insidiously dangerous and we live in a very dangerous situation and we're naive if we think and let down our guard how quickly Gentile society can turn demonic is shown next in this passage in verse 46 of chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar clearly infers that this vision of history with this great thing in his mind in his dream uh, comes from God, God of heaven. He acknowledges his position. Then in verse 1 of chapter 3, what does he turn around and do? Very next event. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, the height which was 60 cubits. You know how 60 cubits is? 90 feet tall. And its width, 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble all the secondary officials and he, they were told, verse 4, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, and all the bands started playing, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Now where do you suppose he might have gotten the idea for the image? The dream of chapter 2. This image story in chapter 3 has got to be connected to chapter 2. They're not independent stories existing both by themselves. There's a continuity in this book. Nebuchadnezzar the pagan has taken something that God has spoken to him. So here, Nebuchadnezzar has had revelation. We just got through that. Revelation chapter 2. That revelation has gone into his heart. He has partially responded to that revelation. But because he also is a pagan... He reinterprets this thing, processes it in his fleshly mind, and comes out and spews out idolatry. And not only is it idolatry, it's an idolatrization of the revelation he was just given. This is what happens when you have a culture that the God doesn't control like he controlled Israel. Who would have been on his case just like that if this guy had been a Jewish king? Who's always lurking out in, in the wings to knock this kind of stuff off right quick? The prophets. Okay? Where are the prophets in the pagan land? They aren't any because they don't exist. Pro pagan nations do not have prophets. Israel had the prophets. So now you see the problem is that revelation can come into an unrestrained society and be dissipated very quickly. Very quickly. Paganism dissipates truth. It suppresses it. It contorts it. 
It perverts it. So we're, we're learning from the book of Daniel how at the very highest levels, at the very highest levels of society, the perversion sets in and can set in quickly. Take your breath away, it happens so fast. So we're learning that the, that the pagan culture, this kingdom of man that arose, is, is very insidious and it's something that is, is always potentially dangerous because what happens after verse 5 in chapter 3? Immediately, verse 8, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought the charges against the Jews. Well, what do you suppose the charges against the Jews are? The Jews aren't going to worship the statue. Oh, gee, we've got a problem there, don't we? Because what happens is that you have a group of stubborn people down here, the religious right, who don't go away. These stubborn people aren't doormats. And they have the audacity to stand up to the most powerful person walking the planet, politically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar. And they said, no. You know, all due respect to you, sir, no. Now, that is unnerving. That is a very unnerving. And this is why, and we've got to glimpse this to understand how we are treated in our own social milieu. Whenever you have a group of people who cannot be peer pressured into a certain behavior pattern everybody else accepts, that is scary. Why is that so scary? Why is that so upsetting to the powers that be? Because ultimately, it's a reminder to them that they're not sovereign. There's something beyond them, and this insidious and stubborn group of people are reminders that they have to answer somewhere else other than themselves. They can have all the political power they want. They can have all the propaganda they want. And yet, it doesn't seem to work on this stubborn group of people. So, here, we'll get into this more later when we get in the doctrine section, but here's a case of civil disobedience caused by a conflict between the ultimate presupposition of paganism and the ultimate presupposition of the Word of God. There can't be harmony between these two. This is the Word of God, and this is the opposite principle of paganism. It goes back to the thing that we've shown over and over. Here's a conflict. In its essence, that's it. Same thing. This is about the 1,030th case that we've seen of this thing. There's only two positions. And ultimately, they are not reconcilable. Ultimately, on the deepest level, it can never be peace between these. There always has to be a war. There always has to be a conflict until one or the other caves in. But these are two ultimate competing basic presuppositions of life. And there's no way you can glue them together. They'll split apart every time. And that's what we're seeing. On one hand, we have the Eastern religions and the ancient myths, the continuity of being, nature, gods, and man, all part of the same thing, no creator-creature distinction. We have some sort of a transmutation build-up, all the men came from the dirt and the earth and so on, and ancient motifs, and also in Darwin. And it's the ultimate control is impersonal fate or chance. And you can't have this as an ultimate principle 
coexisting with this as an ultimate principle. There are two ultimate principles here. Which is the most basic? Is it a personal, infinite, sovereign God, or is it impersonal fate and chance? And you've got to make a choice between that. You can't hesitate. It's one or it's the other. And it can't be both. So that's what's happening here, and it's manifesting in a very practical case of civil disobedience at this point, to the point of death. Now let's look further. Verse 14. The authorities interrogate this. And please notice that these guys are being respectful. They're not thumbing their nose at the guy. They're just saying, no, we're not going to do it. Go ahead. Put us in jail. Tell us. No problem. Still not going to do it. Now, what do you do with somebody that responds this way? I mean, can't we make a deal? No, no deals. Go ahead, kill me. Very unnerving. I remember talking to some World War II veterans that saw the reverse kind of thing in this. In the closing days of World War II, when uh, they were going through France uh, with Patton's army toward the Buchenwald and toward the concentration camps, one of the unnerving things to our soldiers was not the surrender of the German army, but what unnerved this fellow that I was talking to years ago was the fact that the SS Corps would come out when they were, when they were um, these were the Nazi hardliners. And they'd take their shirts off and they said, go ahead, shoot us. All glory to Hitler. And they'd defy him to the last breath. No fear, nothing. And they said it really bothered him because... You know, the other guys, you know, the regular military guys surrender. They realize what the games, these guys wouldn't. Fanatic to the end. Shoot him, the next guy say the same thing. Shoot him, next guy say the same thing. They dared you to shoot him. And this is uh, unnerving when you get these kinds of people. So, here's what happened. Although this is not done in a spirit of defiance. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 14 15, says, Is it true... So he interrogates that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. How ironic when the golden image probably came from a dream God gave him. Now if you are ready at the moment, see he's he trying to work a deal here. See this is, one, this is sort of a, a negotiated thing, a sort of settlement. might say it's kind of like a plea bargain here. Now if you'll do this, then we can work a deal where you can do that and I can get you off of this thing. But, if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God, and look at this, this is the guy that had the dream. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now there's where he made the big mistake. You see, unbelief is ultimately foolish. And eventually it always kicks itself in its butt. Because what it does, it goes so far in rebellion that it dares God. And once that happens, you know, it's great to hear it happen. When evil gets to that point, you clap your hands and say, okay, it's got the, you know, the, the bomb's about ready to go off. And these idiots don't realize it. Go ahead. You know, get, get more hostile at God. Watch what happens next. And here's a case where he's, he's calling down judgment upon himself. What God is there who can do this? Wrong, Nebuchadnezzar. And now the classic reply. Verse 16 and 17 has gone down in church history as one of the most famous passages in all of the Word of God. It is a classic statement of godly civil disobedience and the spirit within which it is given. O Nebuchadnezzar, so there's honor, there's respect. 
We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Period. Wouldn't that be a great movie? Can you imagine cameras zooming in on this guy's expression? When he has three of these helpless people, guards all around, they can take any one of these three out right there, no problem. And they have the audacity to say in their humble little way, no, not going to, sir. See, this is what's on, it's a toughness that is humble. It's almost like a paradox is going on here. And it's very unnerving if you ever have to face this kind of thing. And, of course, you all know the story of the furnace, and there's a fourth person that shows up, the Son of Man, and so on and so on. Verse 25. Well, that's the classic case, and that's what happens. That's the potential kind of incident that can always occur as long as believers exist and are submitted to an overall Gentile society. Because the presuppositional warfare finally collides in very practical ways, in political ways. Okay, on the notes on page 62, we're going to follow up a few other things um, because we do want to get into some of the two of the great conclusions of this um, event of the exile. Um, on the bottom of page 62, I gave an incident that's kind of interesting. A uh, person who was interested in English history gave me part of this. Um, they had reviewed John Wirtz. They were running down genealogy of their family, and they had done a lot of work with the British history. And um, they found out how the king of uh, Britain, Caradoc, was captured and incarcerated in Rome in A.D. 52. And I, I, she, this lady pointed this out to me. She's an English professor. And she pointed this out to me because she said, this is another instance of how, in the circumstances of God, he always seems to have witnesses at the highest level of society. There's always witnesses around. We don't know who they are, may never know who they are, but God has his people placed in his position in his due time. And here's a case. His daughter, Gladys, was adopted by Emperor Claudius and became Claudia, who later married a man by the name of Rufus. Caradoc, his father, Claudia and Rufus were converted and baptized by the Apostle Paul, becoming the first royal converts to Christianity. Claudia and Rufus are mentioned in 2 Timothy and Rufus in Romans 16. Another evidence in Roman law. And we go on and show you how it was very cognizant, Roman law was, of Jewish Roman citizens, many of whom were prominent in the empires, as Cephas notes in his book Antiquities. Thus Rome, as well as the previous kingdoms, all had sufficient biblical information, I might add, biblical information at the highest levels of government, readily available from their citizens, and they rejected it. And in each case, and we won't got time there, but if you look at those references, Daniel 4, Daniel 5, Acts 12, all three of those references in Scripture refer to a direct divine intervention into the life of a Gentile ruler. Or he cut them down. Now let's come down on the bottom, page 63, and we want to conclude our time together tonight by looking at two repercussions of the exile. If the Bible's true, and these things happen the way they happened, then the exile had to cause things. And what we want to do is ask ourselves, 
what effects, what ripples were left in history as a result of this exile? Well, one of them, down the bottom, page 63, is the rise of a new kind of literature. There's different genre of literature in the Bible. Genre is a form. And you can have poetry, you can have different prose, you can have narrative, you can have history, you can have songs. All, all those are called genres. And apocalyptic literature is a genre. And what we want to do tonight is draw attention to this because this has never occurred before in Israel's history. Something new is happening. The, the books where you see this, um, I give you on page 64, give you some references, and what I like to do is turn there uh, in some of these references, some you may never have seen before. We've already looked at Daniel, so let's try some fresh area. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. apocalyptic literatures, ask yourself, what's different about this than the prophetic literature that we studied? Remember that night? I uh, had Warren and I uh, had uh, uh, Larry and I had, who else? I guess I had Mike Devine. Read um, those sections. Remember? Micah, Isaiah, and Hosea. And I said, these are prophetic literature. Remember that, that kind of frame of reference? Well, think about that night and think about when we're going through the wreath proceeding, the lawsuit style of writing, how the prophets brought a lawsuit against the nation in God's name. Now, keep that in the back of your head while you start looking at this kind of literature. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, in the 10th of the month, in the 14th day, year after the city was taken, that same day the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. And he goes on to describe, um, in verse 3, He brought me there. Behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. He was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, give attention to all that I'm going to show you. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Most of you have read the book of Revelation. Do you notice any parallels right away? How's the book of Revelation start? John the Apostle on the island of Patmos. And all of a sudden he's taken up into a vision on the Lord's day. And when he gets into the vision, he sees a vision of Christ. And later on, as he sees the visions inside the book of Revelation, who is it that is always there? John talks to people. He talks to angels. One of the features of apocalyptic literature is there's a divinely placed interpreter somewhere in the vision. Either, and Daniel's not really mentioned, but here it's a case where an angel is given, an interpreting angel accompanies these kinds of visions. And the, whatever this angel is, or angels, plural, they have a teaching ministry to explain the vision to these men. And the visions are all about something that takes place in the far future. Notice this, basically, Ezekiel 40, 41, 43, all the way to 48 is a section on the temple. And if you read the dimensions of this temple, babes, it doesn't fit anything in the Old Testament. This is not a vision of anything known in the Old Testament. This is a vision of a temple to be yet built for Israel. Now, if you'll turn to another book, uh, further on through the Old Testament, Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7, I want you to see 
um, another case of apocalyptic literature. So after you've looked at a few of these examples, you'll see that the book of Revelation is not new at all. The book of Revelation is just another instance of that. In Zechariah 1, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. And I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said, I will show you what these are. See the theme? Again, it's a characteristic of apocalyptic literature that there's an interpreting angel somewhere in the vision. And the interpreting angel gives you all these goodies. So, the question now is, well, why... Uh, what, what does apocalyptic literature do? We, you know, Psalms were created so we can worship God and have the devotional life. Let's try to make an opposition here between the prophetic literature and the apocalyptic literature. Let's see if we can contrast and compare these two and see if we can come to some conclusions. There is a practical conclusion that we're coming to out of all this. Um, the role of the prophets. What basically was the motive of men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Elijah, and Elisha? What were they really doing? Remember we said they were administering what? Of the Mosaic Covenant. They were administering the curses they were spokesmen that God said, you people have violated my covenant. And basically, I'm going to discipline you. And then, they, then what would they do? And they wouldn't just leave it there, but they'd always have a cushioning after effect. Remember? The model of prophetic literature is De uh, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 gives a capsulation of all of Israel's history and then says everything turns out fine in the end for those who trust God. Um, so... The emphasis, the goal of the prophetic literature is to secure repentance. It's there to convict of sin. It's there to bring believers to an awareness, uh, to solve the problem. It's not one of economic reaction. It's not one of human gimmicks. It's one of confession of sin. That's how we get fellowship restored. So the goal of prophetic literature is restoration. Now let's think about something else. To whom is most prophetic, most, not all, but to whom is most prophetic literature addressed? It concerns really matters of Israel, not the pagans. And it's primarily Israel-centered, or it's primarily, we'll say, centered on believers. About believers. Now the apocalyptic literature is global in its extent. All nations are generally included in the purview of apocalyptic literature. Now, that's, that's not totally opposite because the prophetic literature does address individual nations. You know, Nahum addresses uh, Nineveh and so on. But the apocalyptic literature tends to be global in the sense that it deals with human race-wide issues. And... In particular, apocalyptic literature's emphasis is upon the final, ultimate, catastrophic judgment of God upon humanity. So, apocalyptic emphasizes God's judgments 
but it's God's judgments, not according to the Sinaitic covenant, it's God's judgment upon the pagan world. Now, if apocalyptic literature arose during the period of the exile, let's try to make a conclusion. Let's think, what is the Holy Spirit after? What function, spiritually speaking, does apocalyptic literature do for believers who are going to face exile outside of the kingdom of God, living by themselves under the oppressive condition of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they don't know whether next week they're going to be thrown in a fiery furnace. What function, what ministry does apocalyptic literature have? Hope. The apocalyptic literature doesn't castigate believers. It's interesting, you read in here, there's not a castigation of behaviors of believers. It's all, I'm for you. These powers that seem so powerful in your time, I will bring down. So it's a hope. It's a literature of hope. And what's so strange about the apocalyptic literature is that the imagery of it is always viewed as symbolic to the absurdity. Now, obviously, there's symbolism in it. But consider, in the book of Revelation, we have judgments upon the earth. Believe it or not, we have people in our own evangelical camp that believe the book of Revelation is already passed. That referred to 70 A.D. Excuse me? When did we have earthquakes in 70 A.D.? The sun blotted out. One-third of the world's population dissipated. Excuse me? But none other than R.C. Sproul, preterist, believes it's all over. book of Revelation is passed. Don't have to worry about it anymore. Now, the problem is that misplaces the function of apocalyptic literature. When was apocalyptic literature given? Prior to a vast time of exile. Okay, in the Old Testament, when was apocalyptic literature? Before the exile. How long was the exile? Seventy years plus. Because not all the Jews are restored. It was the beginning of the diaspora. The Jews would be scattered hither and yon through the whole world. And they needed hope that eventually these powers in which they lived would be brought down. Now, similarly, the book of Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. Now, why do you suppose God would give the church and the nation of Israel apocalyptic literature? So he could get over 70 A.D.? No, no. Apocalyptic literature is given, its primary function is long-term hope when believers are living in an alien kingdom. That's the context of this genre of literature. How absurd we have the people trying to interpret the book of Revelation as something past. So just remember, we'll tie that later when we get into doctrine, apocalyptic literature. The other thing that was number two on page 64, the other fallout from the exile, the other marking in history. Oh, and by the way, a little, uh, little uh, uh, footnote here. Apocalyptic literature generates hope for the long term. Guess. Remember, I said the pagan world will always take Revelation and reinterpret it. Let me give you a great example of this. We, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar, right? He saw God's dream of the statue. And we, in the next chapter, he's building a statue and having everybody worship it. Totally out of the theological context of the original dream. Totally perverted the thing. Guess what happened to the book of Daniel in history? The book of Daniel became the battle cry, ideologically, 
of Hegel and Karl Marx. See, back in the days of real communism, when it was really aggressive and in danger of conquering the world, people could not understand, Western intelligentsia could not understand why can't we convince these people that, you know, capitalism and democracy is better. What's the matter? What's the deal? The deal was that communism was a gospel. It was good news to the poor. It promised a cataclysm, an apocalyptic ending to history when all governments would be overthrown and the dictatorship of the proletariat would be brought in. Karl Marx got that from the book of Revelation and scholars now know he did. He got it two ways. He got it from some German people in the German pietistic movement in Germany and he also got it through Hegel because Hegel got his kingdoms in his book, his philosophy and where he got them from, book of Daniel. So how ironic that this book, Apocalyptic Book of Daniel, has led historically to the rise of Hegel, indirectly the Third Reich, the idea of history progressing toward a great kingdom, and communism. So those modern social movements derive from the Bible by atheists. Because atheism couldn't give that view of history. The idea of history progressing to a goal could only be if there was a plan for history. So ultimately, this is a great illustration of how paganism takes the fruit of the Bible, that it can't grow itself on its own ground, takes the fruit of the Bible and twists and perverts it and builds a program out of it. Well, the second thing that happened as a result of the exile was the rise, this is amazing, the rise of seven different religions within 50 years. Look at the quote on page 64. In the 6th century BC, there was a tidal wave of revolt against the priestcraft of the ancient world. This wave shattered the power of the old religions and through their cults continued to, though the cults continued to exist as backwaters for centuries, seven world religions appeared within 50 years of each other and all continue today. And the dates on the next page, top of page 65. Look at those dates and think about the period of the exile. A remarkable fact, I have never heard a historian deal with this. Here's the exile, 586 to 516. And even after that, there was a lot of Jews in captivity. What happened in 586? It was the end of the glory of God. God um, left the, the nation. Remember we saw that retraction of the glory? And the Sinaitic Covenant... The, the testimony of the Sinaitic Covenant, which had been going out through Solomon, had been going out through Daniel, the idea that there was an ethic, the idea that there was principles that the individual could believe in, the idea that there were truths, it must have radiated all over the Middle East. And if you look at the dates, in, in the page 65 on the top, the first guy out, it's important to see who it is in the sequence of dates, Zoroaster, we don't hear much about Zoroastrianism, but it's a dualism, good and evil. His date, look at his date. Born in 600 and down to 583. Didn't last long. Founded the religion of Persia. Where was Daniel? Second kingdom Daniel was in? Persia. And what kind of circles did Daniel circulate in, socially speaking? The rulers. Zoroaster never ran across Daniel? I highly doubt it. In India, Mahavira, 
599 to 527 started Jainism. Gautama, 560 to 480, introduced Buddhism. Hindu reformers began Vedanta Monism with the Upanishads, Jewel's reading school. Same period. China, Lao Tzu, 604 to 517, founded Taoism, and Confucius, 551 to 479, pioneered Confucianism. And you'll always hear it thrown at you, oh, well, it's all a bunch of religions in the world. What I wanted you to see is that all these religions in the world have biblical origins. Remember we said Noah's family started all the animism, it was degenerated, every culture on earth had one time the Noahic Bible, and what we're seeing here is that all these religions that people, oh, oh what about Buddhists, what about Hinduism, they all arose within 70 years of one another, and all of them arose during the period of the exile when the Jew was thrown out of Israel. Now tell me that's a coincidence. Tell me that there wasn't some sort of international influencing going on here. Because one of the things, particularly, if you look at those names, particularly Taoism, Confucianism, Zoroastrianism, and Jainism are all ethical religions. Confucius was an ethicist, dealt with political ethics, what is right and what is wrong. So, and same with Taoism. So, they were an emphasis on ethics. And then, by the way, legalistic Judaism is the seventh religion. Judaism never recovered from the exile. Judaism started getting hardening of the arteries during this period of time, and at movements that would eventually wind up with a pharisaical movement in the New Testament began right here. So, these are all the religions. And then there was one other thing. There was the Greek philosophy, which we'll get into a little bit later. On page 65, first full paragraph, notice the sentence. Years ago, I had a lady that was an artist who took a bookend. You know, this, you see these on bookends. And I thought she had a neat way. I said, can't you move the guy's arm a little bit? And um, I think that's a great picture of autonomous man. Please, I'll do it myself. And that's, our that's in our flesh, that's all of us. We're all there. We want to rule ourselves on our terms independently of the Word of God. And on page 65, although differing in details, these seven religions and philosophy have one thing in common. They emphasize man as Savior. See, that was different. The earlier pagan religions had gods in the background. But those gods drop back into the background very much now. And in the 6th century now, man arises. Man is going to solve his problems. And I want you to follow with me, if you will, just, just the next few sentences in that same paragraph. They were potent new versions of paganism which arose to sustain the kingdom of man. Some were pessimistic and irrationalist, such as Buddhism, which stressed the illusory character of the human ego and the limitations of human thought. For Buddhism, man saves himself by losing individual desire. It's sort of like a spiritual suicide you commit. Taoism and Vedanta Monism developed the basic pagan idea of the continuity of being into a full-fledged pantheism in which God is the creation. You know, you're walking through the street and you're walking on God. You see the cow, that's God. That's why you don't eat him. Starve to death. Others were optimistic and rationalistic. 
such as those which stress ethics and doing good, Zoroastrianism, Jainism, Confucianism, and Judaism. In these, man saves himself by his good works. Whether optimistic or pessimistic, all of the religions that developed in the exilic period promoted man to a more active role than the older pagan religions. They mirrored the transfer of political supremacy to the Gentiles and the rise of the imperialist spirit of the age. That is the imperial spirit of the age. Okay, well next time we're going to go on. If you look in the notes, we're going to start um, with the... Uh, we're going to review a little bit of philosophy on page 66 there. I want to cover some of that. And then we start to get into the doctrinal consequences. And in our Q&A the other day, other week, we raised this question about civil disobedience and so on. All that we're going to deal with under the doctrine of separation. Because that's something that is a, becomes a major issue, as we see in the book of Daniel. How do individual believers live in a society that is officially pagan? officially pagan. Before, they were living inside Israel. It wasn't officially pagan. It was officially Yahwehistic. It was officially biblical. Father, thank you for your comforting grace. We thank you for the work that you did in generating apocalyptic literature as a revelation of your providential control and ultimately catastrophic intrusion into human history. We thank you that we have the assurance that no matter how big, how powerful, and how oppressive Unbelief may be around us. Its day is coming. And we have that assurance through these great promises of apocalyptic literature. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time I know it, there were some neat questions about separation that came up, political revolt and that sort of thing. Um, anything else? That kind of helps if I can get some feedback because I usually think about that when I start work in the next lesson up and respond to it. So if anybody has it. Yes, yeah, Debbie. Is there any general rule when you are looking at how you mean a, a rule of interpretation? Very hard. <laughs> Apocalypse. Yeah. The the reason for that, I think, Debbie, is and it's a good question. What about the hermeneutics or the rules of interpretation for apocalyptic literature? Um, one of the brightest guys I've ever known. Um, when I prepared these notes, I went back and I years and years and years ago. Um, had gone in the library and got his doctoral dissertation, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the rules of interpretation of apocalyptic literature. Um, and he lists the rules, and one of the rules that really impressed me was that since all apocalyptic literature has a built-in angelic interpreter, um, you best adhere to what the angelic interpreter interprets it and stop there. Because he says, what happens is, in our curiosity, we try to interpret the interpretation. And that's what leads to things like the book of Daniel here with that statue in chapter 2. Daniel does not interpret every little image. I mean, he doesn't talk about the beard and all the things that, that are there. So, that's not to say those things aren't important, but it's just simply to say that they're out beyond our grasp. But... 
the other reason why hermeneutics apocalyptic literature is so tough is for the same reason it's so tough to interpret prophetic literature when it gets into future things because of this accordion problem. That things that occur very close together in the prophetic writings turn out to be centuries apart. And it just blows your mind. Um, a good, excellent example is when Jesus went into the synagogue uh, one Sabbath and he got up to read at the point when the scripture was read in the synagogal meeting and um, he got up and he unrolled the scroll and he turned to Isaiah. And uh, he read that um, passage referring to himself in his humility. And then he stopped right in the middle of one of the verses, which was, if you read the rest of the verse, was talking about the second advent. And he rolled up the scroll and put it aside, and that was the famous time, you know, he came back to the congregation and said, this day it's been fulfilled. And that just really frosted their chaps. When they, when they hear this Jewish guy gets up and he has the arrogancy to proclaim that, you know, it's fulfilled in me today. See, this is also a little sub-note here. This is why Jesus could not be a good person. C.S. Lewis is absolutely right that either he was a lunatic or he was a son of God. But people who come up with what C.S. Lewis called a condescending nonsense, that Jesus was a good man, it's just silly. Every portrait you get of him, he, he's total arrogance or he's the one he claimed to be. Well, in that passage in Isaiah, it's clear that the Lord Jesus very, very clearly distinguished between the first and second advents, placing them poles apart, and it's all hooked into one verse. And here's the Son of God interpreting the scripture. So it just is a big challenge to do that. And I think the safest way of handling apocalyptic literature is go back to the covenants that control history. Go back to earlier passage and set, mount the gun, so to speak, on a firm base um, and, and mount it on those covenants. You can't go wrong because we know the covenants are clear. So whatever these apocalyptic things are talking about, it has to be an embellishment of the fulfillments of those basic primary covenants. And if you, at, at issue today in this preterite discussion that's going on, um, this, this thing has come up in the last five or ten years. It's relatively new. I mean, it's, preteritism isn't new. It was in the second, third century, but it seems like for some reason it's a big thing now. Um, preteritism is, uh, preterite means past. And the idea is that all of the book of Revelation, or 99% of it, was fulfilled in the uh, fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, the problem with that is that the catastrophes mentioned in the book of Revelation are global geophysical catastrophes. And either you take those symbolically or you take them literally. Well, if you look at those vials and the bowl judgments and those judgments in the book of Revelation, you lay them out on a piece of paper, uh, they remind you of something happened earlier in history. Think of historical analog now. Where else did we see in early Jewish history the sun turning dark, cataclysmic destruction, it was on a Gentile kingdom. And it was, the, it was the Exodus. And that's why you heard me back when we were going through the Exodus saying, I think histor history, historians have the timelines wrong because I can't conceive of the judgments reported in the narratives. And keep in mind, the reports of the Exodus are narrative genre. They're not apocalyptic genre. They're a narrative genre. 
that here you have narrative, straightforward narrative, describing the plagues on Egypt as though they're literal events, catastrophic events, things that, total interruption of nature. We have the destruction in Noah's day, amplified and interpreted by Peter as a global thing. So I believe that the hermeneutics or the rules of interpreting apocalyptic literature are controlled by our knowledge of earlier scripture. And the earlier scripture give us the tip that when God judges, the Exodus was a mini uh, preview of coming attractions of the future. So we already have the literalness of the global catastrophes established by the way the Exodus happened. So therefore, when we go into the future, into the apocalyptic thing, and we read about all these judgments here, we shouldn't be taking them symbolically. We should be taking them literally. There's no reason to take any scripture symbolically if, you, if it makes sense literally. When it doesn't make sense literally and you get conflicts, then yeah, okay, let's see if this is a symbol or not. But even symbols you have to be careful of. In the book of Daniel, you know one of the great symbols, and it's a powerful one, it's the sea. And it's the symbol of Gentile power. And if you think about water and the sea, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a symbol only God the Creator could have picked. Because um, in one of Daniel's visions, the wi four winds of heaven blow upon the sea. And out of the sea arises the beasts. Same language in the book of Revelation. Now think, what does wind do to water? It whips it up. Okay. Now it turns out that the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, is the same word for breath or wind. So now we have, hmm, isn't this interesting? See, this is one of those, those symbols that is so loaded with like 20 layers of stuff in it. Because now we're talking about if the sea is humanity and the wind blows upon it, these are spiritual forces. And as a result of the spiritual forces blowing on the water, it gets turbulent. And out of this comes these beasts and these animals. And what does that say? I mean, it's not too difficult to interpret. It's saying that the spiritual forces operate on the human race. And you have guys like tonight with Nebuchadnezzar. One chapter, he's worshiping God for the dream. The next chapter, he's idolizing the whole thing. How quickly it can be transformed. That's what it's saying. Potentially, that's the whole human race. The human race can be viciously transformed overnight. And I think that's why um, it's useful to go to Washington, D.C., the Holocaust Museum, and keep in mind that when you go there, you're seeing the behavior of the most well-educated society in Western civilization. Nazism did not take place in a ghetto. It took place with the full complicity of the most brilliant intellects the most brilliant community of scientists, the place where philosophy started in the West is Germany. And then ask yourself, but where did the Reformation start? Luther. How did, what happened in Germany? How was it that you could have a German monk so loyal and faithful to the Word of God who translated from Latin to German and basically established the German language, just like the English language has been basically established by the King James Bible. He established the German language. And in a few short centuries, we go from Luther to Hitler. 
how could that be? So when you, it's kind of a scary kind of thought, and I think we have to understand that that's the instability built into fallen human race. That's how quickly we can turn into mob-like animals, and it doesn't take much to do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, I used to go around to some of the seminars. Francis Schaeffer, when he was alive, uh, I never forget, he, he gave a seminar in Dallas. And if you don't know Francis Schaeffer's writings, you really need to look at his series. Uh, back four or five summers ago, I led a, uh, his video series called How Shall We Then Live? It's an excellent series, and I think we should do it again here. Um, but it's a, it's a panorama of the, of the roots of our Western civilization. And I can remember in the 70s, he and Coop went around. At the time, Coop had not yet become Surgeon General of the United States. And um, at Dallas, guys were raising their hands and, and attacking him all the time. I said, Schaefer, you know, you just take things too far. I mean, you're going around this country from coast to coast and saying that abortion leads to infanticide, which leads to, to mercy killing of the older, elderly. Well, no, that's never going to happen. Come on, Schaefer, you're exaggerating things. No, what Schaefer saw was that once you tamper with the definition of life and you move it from letting the scripture inform the definition to man's speculation inform the definition, now you've got plastic life. Now life is whatever you said it was last week. So the first week we say that the fetus inside the woman's womb is not life. Oh, okay. Then the next week we say, well, you know, this infant has Down syndrome and, and you know, he's born, but, well, you know, let's knock him off. Then it saves, think of all the money it saves. It saves grief, it saves money. Now, all kinds of pragmatic arguments can be built. All you have to do is just switch your definition of life. That, well, life really isn't life until um, he's socially acclimated. And then you deal with the older people, and, and, and the next thing is going to be the older people. It's already do, being done in Holland. Uh, there's another sad case. Holland, in the beginning of the 20th century, had a Christian theologian, evangelical theologian, for prime minister. Amazing story. Had free, free University of Amsterdam, where Christian art was taught. The only place in history where Christian art was taught. And we have, you know, it's the whorehouse of Europe as well as the eugenics center of Europe today. And you... you you see the, the, the um, doctors in, in Holland have legal right to kill your mother. All you have to do is give the word. It takes care, it reduces health care costs. Very easy. There's powerful pragmatic forces here. So once you relax the definitions and the content, there's economic forces that are just like this. They're leaning on you. And so once you release... Your, the hard-nosed definitions of the words, the whole thing caves in. And that's what we're seeing. Because we don't hold carefully to these basic categories. The, 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 the pragmatics will always win over, every time. And we've killed enough people. You now, what's so ironic is that we're wearing every discussion of Social Security reform is there's not going to be enough people to pay Social Security bill when we're older. Well, guess why? You just knocked off 30 million people for the last 10 years. Sure, they're not around. So, God has structured history, thankfully, so that once man makes these aberrations 
and perversions, he always self-destructs. That's how history is saved, because ultimately paganism destroys itself. It always, it always, I mean, homosexuals, they, thankfully, they can't reproduce, you know? And that's why exactly, to perpetuate themselves, now they're getting into homosexual marriages, they want the legal right to adopt children. Why are they, why are they panicking about that? It just dawned on them. Gee, we're not reproducing. No kidding. And so, the result of this is that they're self-destructing. And that's always happened in history. Homosexual societies always go down the tubes. So, it's sad when it's your country that's happened to be involved in this, but uh, at least we can say we saw it coming. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a good question, Wade. Uh, Wade asked a question about um, the, the idea, and of course we're, we're heading into an era where it's going to be a lot of that talk. I think we have to adhere to the fact that times and seasons are not known. And that's because, primarily because the rapture is an unannounced event. Nope, nothing, nothing's going to happen before that. That can happen any time. And that's when Christ comes, of course, to take his people. Uh, that leaves... For t that sets up a time clock so that at T sub zero then the entire human race is unsaved. And then you have rapid evangelism during the tribulation and all the rest of it happens. And then obviously once the tribulation starts you know that well seven years down the road we're going to have something. The problem is until that treaty is made there is no firm anchor inside history. All we can do is speculate. And that's all we got. What we can say is that in previous eras, the reason why our era, by the way, is so, on that biblical time scale, 2,000 years fits, just in the broad scheme of things. If the world was created a little bit before 4,000, and the idea is that you have 6,000-year periods and then 1,000-year millennium, I mean, it's, it's, you know, that's, it's kind of a symmetrical picture. But the Bible does warn us of the times and the seasons no man knows, and Jesus said that. So we have to salute and say, well, then we better not forecast. And you'll hear books written, Jesus coming on October 3rd, 1993, and he never showed up, and gee, made a mistake. And that's been going on since the 19th century. That's why the Adventists did that. And Miller in New York had everybody up on a hill in, in upstate New York on 1844, Jesus was supposed to come back. So it's really made mockery of the whole Second Advent with these silly things. But what we can say that is impressive in our time is that before God moves, if you look at biblical history, he always forces us to have to solve the problem before he solves it. Sort of like an excellent teacher. He always lays the problem out and lets the student play with it a little bit. And then, oh, you can't solve the problem? Come to daddy. He'll show you how to solve the problem. Now, all of a sudden, the student is all ears because a student tried to solve the problem, fell on his face, and now he's teachable. But if Daddy had showed the problem right away, he wouldn't have been teachable. Well, then ask yourself, what are the big struggles the human race now is faced with? Um, 
First of all, intriguingly, if Jesus returns, he's got to come back to a temple in Israel. So Israel, since 1948, is now in place. That was not so in 1844 when the Adventists were doing their thing in upstate New York, nor the Mormons. But now Israel is now in place. Israel is in the land. Uh, they've already got preparation in the sense that they own half the hill where the temple's going to be. And I think the most impressive thing of the hour is that for the first time in the human race, we have global, a global perspective. We had kind of mercantile-type perspectives before, but we really got a global village going. Marshall McLuhan was right. And this is the first time it's happened. And I think we have to have a global consciousness to become aware that the whole human race collectively has a problem. And then Jesus, when he comes to set up his kingdom, it's a global kingdom. It's understood that it's preparatory to appreciating why it's necessary to have a perfect son of God, son of man, come and become the world dictator. Because nobody else has solved the problem. If, if he didn't do history that way, you know what we'd all do for all eternity. Well, he didn't give us a chance. I mean, gee, I mean, we could have tried that idea, we could have tried that one. And what he's doing, he's, he's playing all the cards. Go ahead. You think that hand's got it in? Go ahead, play it. Lay it on your cards and see what happens. And so after we've laid down all our cards, we've tried communism, we've tried democracy, we've tried republicanism, we've tried this, we've tried that, we've tried peace treaties, we've tried nuclear warfare. I mean, what, you know, not too many more options here. So when all the cards are laid down, then he's going to lay his down. And that's going to be the return of Christ. And I'm convinced that when he comes, it will be intuitively obvious to everyone there will be a, a sigh of relief for the believers who go into this kingdom that, whew, you know, appreciation for what he's done. Because now we see that the human history could not come to a glorious culmination without a perfect human leader. And when Jesus comes back...